it's a really exciting time to be a scholar of the Bible and how the church is engaging the Bible today. I think what's triggering it, and this is only just me and me, myself putting two cents together here, but I think the reality is as the church grows and it becomes a global entity, I think it's encountering modern translations in every language but English. I think so many kind of Wasatch Front Latter-day Saints think this is King James and we're using it. And then when we leave that, no one else is. We are, we are literally aligned with some Baptist communities and everybody else, almost everybody in the entire world has gone to at least a more modern translation. And so I think the church is saying, hey, um, you, you're going to encounter these. Our missionaries are encountering them every single day. If they're using the church's Bible in German or say French or say Italian or something, they're encountering a modern translation. And they're probably finding those easier to read. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I'm excited to be able to get into this episode. Uh, we've got Tom Waymond, and we'll introduce him here in a second. But we're going to talk about translation, uh, the needs for translation, what translation is, how translation may hinder our progress, our learning, uh, and, and all things translation. And I want you to know this is a phenomenal conversation that is about to take place. So if you're thinking, ah, translation, is this for me? It is for you. Stick around. Tom, welcome into the Cultural Hall. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to know a little bit about you, uh, as we get into this, uh, Tom has recently, uh, penned the New Testament, a translation for Latter-day Saints. This is, uh, in part with the co the folks from Coford Books, and there's a link of where you can purchase that in the show notes. But but who, that big uh, existential question, is Tom Waymond? Uh, I'm currently employed as a as a faculty member at Brigham Young University, and I primarily study uh, first second century Roman period. Um, Egypt and Palestine, Israel area. So my areas obvious of interest are early Christians, um, but also uh, the setting in which they exist. So I'm really interested in culture, context for um, Christians and their communities and how they develop. Um, so I've been at it for a long time. I've been here at Brigham Young University for 23 years and wow. always focusing on on kind of early Christian themes. What was it that got you into studying early Christianity? Uh, you know, I, I think it's really just a, a really geeky thing. Um, I I was <laughs> it, it is, but how did you get into it? That's the <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny thing. I was on my way to becoming a dentist and I took Greek as my electives, which is a great idea for everyone. And <laughs> I had this fascinating professor uh, that studied early Christianity. And it really triggered in me this idea. I didn't really like dentistry or chemistry, but I loved Greek and I always had loved ancient things. And so I asked him one day after class, hey, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a classicist and I, I study this. And that kind of gave me the courage to say, I'm no longer taking physics and chemistry and I'm going to take Greek and Latin and have never looked back. I, I love what I do. And I think that's a tremendous uh, thing because it shows just being able to follow a passion where you know that dentistry, at least allegedly, is kind of a solid, we know what a trajectory is, and then you have your own practice, and then you're able to make money and all the things. Studying Greek and and being, you know, uh, um, highly knowledgeable about early Christianity, there's a limited amount of, like, 
ways that you can provide for yourself and or family. Yeah, and limited's a generous term. <laughs> there, there's no jobs in this field. And I knew that, but I just I had to give it a shot. Um, it was just kind of in my blood and who I was. And I love that stuff. And I was lucky enough to land a position at BYU. And yeah, it's it's been great, but it it really is expanding to the soul and to the mind. And so I've always really loved that academic engagement part. Was it something that you had interest in at all before that that uh, Greek class? Like as you look back and you go, oh, I did find those kind of things interesting. Or was it just a great professor, a time when you were searching and, and yearning and, and that came together? No, it's it's been part of me forever. I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid uh-huh. and, or a fireman, right? You know, when you're in second yeah. grade. And and so I I decided you know, that's what I would do. But I realized pretty quickly in school that archaeologists spend a lot of time in the sand in the summer away from their families. And that wasn't really for me. I really was more interested in what they excavate. And so I do a lot of work in what's called papyrology, the papyri that come forth out of Egypt. And even um, some of our New Testament texts are written on papyri. And anyways, yeah, it's a it, it's a fascinating thing, but it's always been part of my journey. I, I served a mission in Italy and, you know, all things ancient there. P-Day was just like golden for me. <laughs> so I would like, let's get up early and be at the museums when they open. And I think my companions were pretty exhausted at times by it, but I, I just loved it. You know, I love hearing that too. And, and knowing that, uh, you know, maybe when you get the call to Italy, you don't put it all together, but being able to look back on it in, you know, in that hindsight to be like, oh, and being prepared and being able to serve here as opposed to if you would have served in Kentucky, right? It's a completely yeah. different historical sort of a, a reference. So then, so then you decide, okay, hey, family, I'm not going to do this dentistry thing anymore. This is what I'm doing. What what was the response from those who loved you and and cared for you and were around you? Um, I'm sure it came as a huge shock to my wife. Um, she was very patient and um, and very kind about it, but not ever angry. I'm sure she wondered um, that, you know, what what are you going to do with this? And, <laughs> and so we had a number of those conversations because early on I had no idea what you do with this. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, parents, they're deeply concerned. You know, they think you've just given up your soul and you're, you you have no employment possibilities. And so we'd have the annual kind of dance where they would say, you know, what are you going to graduate this year? <laughs> uh, probably not. And and then, you know, they would remind you, you can still get a job and, yeah. <laughs> and being whatever. And so, yeah, my dad was a dentist. He was very disappointed. He oh. thought we would be in dentistry together. But yeah. Uh, nope. I, I left those and, and yeah, it, it was a big you, dance. Yeah. Did they give you those loving conversations of like, and, and, and like maybe have something in your back pocket, like, you know, like, yep. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a constant thing. And there was always a, what are you going to make? You know? So, okay, let's say this goes your way. Mm-hmm. What would you ever make? And you're like, well, you know, teacher's wages. And, and so, that that didn't get them excited either. So it, it's a long process. Do you think any of that was sort of culturally influenced? You know, we've talked about it a lot here in the cultural hall around the arts, 
because there there's sort of a feeling that it's like for those that feel like they're called or drawn or even gifted slash talented in the arts that they're like, yeah, but if I want to have a family, I've got to give up that dream and do a master's of business administration or, or those kind of things. Do you think any of that was sort of cultural, culturally driven? I do. I, I felt immense pressure by um, friends in the church, um, family in the church um, to, to realize that I probably couldn't support a family. And that's a real burden to carry because as a, as a young scholar, you don't have a lot of skills. You don't, think you're marketable, but you're doing these degrees and you love what you do, but everybody's kind of reminding you. A lot of people fail at this, that there's a subtle kind of, hey, you know, I knew someone who did a PhD in humanities and he works at the local grocery store. Right. And so you have these these narratives that really push back against it. And and that's hard. Uh, it, it was very hard. I imagine it's still that way today. I finished my PhD 23 years ago. And it took me um, a process of 10 years from my BA to my PhD. And yeah, it's it's a long, hard process um, with a lot of questions. People ask the subtle question that jabs at you a little bit. I don't think mm-hmm. they always mean to because it doesn't fit their narrative. If you say you're going to be an accountant, you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> Everything's sure. good. Yeah. How uh, uh, just one more question around this, and I'll and then I'll leave it be because I want to make sure we leave plenty of time to be able to talk about translations and and what that even means and all that stuff. Uh, but to that person that that knows and feels very passionate about that and and gets a lot of those questions from loved ones and things like that, like from your experience, what what kind of thing do you say to someone like that that just feels like they're called to a particular thing but are facing a lot of either familial or cultural adversity? I would say that I never felt called in a sense that I I knew this would work out. I always was balancing a, a kind of unease that I I didn't know if I su- could succeed. I don't come from a family that has academic roots, and I've never regretted a single day doing what I love. I I love my job. After 23 years, I still love what I do, and I I I really think that's a worthwhile life to pursue if you can in some form find a way um, through teaching or research or other places to pursue those humanities type degrees um, it's worth it i i'm glad i'm not a dentist this day i'd probably be very wealthy or at least you know wealthy enough and and i wouldn't trade that today for anything it's it's great to love your work my father-in-law now who used to be one of the kind of most kind of stringent voices on you shouldn't have done this. He tells me all the time, Tom, you're probably the only person I know that loves their job. Mm. So I kind of feel that I I chose well and I love my colleagues and and topics still. So yeah, I would say go for it, even if you don't feel called, but you feel that that's who you are. Um, and I, I think that's who I was. That's really powerful. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, with us and and certainly not where I thought maybe this conversation would begin, but I think that's a great sort of jumping off point now as we get into some of those things that that you have studied for all these now decades. Uh, when we talk about translation, I feel like everybody just sort of knows it's like it's written in a language and then it's made available in another language. But is that too base? Is that too crude of a definition of translation? 
Um, it is for a Latter-day Saint. I think I think commonly that's a great way to think of translation. One language into another, that works. And you can put a computer in the middle there and they can do something kind of like Google Translate. But the reality is, is Latter-day Saints have these very kind of unstabilizing narratives about translation. There's the idea that the plates can be translated, the gold plates, if you will, or, or something can be translated by a rock in a hat. Mm -hmm. And um, you can also have the plates on the shelf. And then you have papyri that are translated for which, you know, they, they're they not a one for one. And then you have the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which only exists in English to English, which is another one. And then you have this very kind of academic notion, Greek into English, like like I did. And so I think it, I hear this a lot when I talk to LDS audiences, this idea that, that like, the words are unclear and people could have all these choices to determine the meaning. It's not quite like that. Sometimes we can just, we can ask a question, is this a purpose or a result clause? But we know mm -hmm. what all the words are. And so a scholar working today to say it for a Latter-day Saint audience cannot full stop, cannot produce the Joseph Smith translation. It's, it's just not, it's it's not something that comes out of the Greek. So you have to say this is prophetic commentary or insight or something like that. And so that, that's been hard for me. I've been constantly trying to say translation is like you started. And I appreciate you starting that way. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've got a Greek word. I can turn it into an English word. So 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 if I'm if I'm understanding, hearing you correctly, like when people say the Joseph Smith translation, it's a misnomer. Yeah. It yeah. is. Um, and, and I don't know the right words, and I'm, I'm not here to kind of correct or anything that way with Joseph Smith's translation, but it's not something a scholar like myself can do. And there's no lost manuscripts that support it. It, it. it really doesn't. This is some type of commentary or the prophet speaking to you through it or something like that. And all of those are great categories, but I. it's hard for me to compete in that space where they're like, well, there's a Joseph Smith translation there. Why didn't you use it in your translation? And to me, that's unanswerable because I can't arrive at it is the real answer. The Greek says something different. I want to take a, a quick break. When we come back, let's just dive right back into translation uh, in, in some conversations that we had sort of offline. You highlight some things that you want to touch on in this time. I'd really like to get into them. We'll do that coming back in the second block of the cultural hall. Bestdjinutah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now, just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others, Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you, you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent not a parent, just the parent, uh, or one of the parents, because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom, and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinutah.com. <laughs> 
Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. Our lifetime service guarantee has become the most trusted warranty in the industry. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop computer and they start at only $29 a month. Check us out at PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. If you want to say, hey, I really loved that episode with Tom, that's a place you can send that email, contact at theculturalhall.com. If you have a, a, a thing that says, oh, you know, I really like Tom's book, and then also there's another guy that you need to have on, you can send guest suggestions to contact at theculturalhall.com. If uh, if you've got something negative to say, just keep it to yourself. Don't send that to contact at theculturalhall.com. We don't need your negativity. If it's constructive, I'll take it. But if it's just negative for negative sake, keep it to yourself. Like your mom said, if you don't, if you can't say something nice, keep it to yourself. Don't say anything at all. Tom, uh, there is a lot of conversation in most recent years around uh, translation uh, when we talk about the the different versions of the Bible that we use, say, like in Sunday school or in our Latter-day Saint homes. Uh, most typically, I think people are like, well, hey, Richie, it's the King James Version and King James Version only, but with the updating of the church handbook of instructions and some other things, it really seems like we're starting to say, hey, maybe we're going for a greater understanding and less of this book true, this book not true, don't use this version, you know, do all that. Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be a scholar of the Bible and how the church is engaging the Bible today. I think what's triggering it, and this is only just me and me, myself putting two cents together here, but I think the reality is as the church grows and it becomes a global um, um, entity, I think it's encountering modern translations in every language but English. I think so many kind of Wasatch Front Latter-day Saints think this is King James and we're using it. And then when we leave that, no one else is. Hmm. We, are, we are literally aligned with, with some Baptist communities and everybody else, almost everybody in the entire world has gone to at least a more modern translation. And so I think the church is saying, hey, um, you, you're going to encounter these. Our missionaries are encountering them every single day. If they're using the church's Bible in German or, say, French or, say, Italian or something, they're encountering a modern translation. And they're probably finding those easier to read. So I think the reality is globalness um, has caused us to say, Hey, should we be updating it all? And and we're seeing that so quite a bit. I I think at least allowing the usage of them. Do, do you think, or I guess I should say, how much of that do you think is cultural influence? Because I guess my narrative, and this is just again a, opinion of one, like you know we're we're taught from a very young age. We believe the Bible, as far as it is translated correctly, and then you know we have the church sort of reinforcing this King James version. And I guess in my mind, I I sort of not instructed by the church, but sort of took two points and went, all right. So as far as it's translated correctly, and this is the Bible version that says that I should be using. And so if I use something else that's been translated differently or whatever, like I'm further from the truth or further from what God would intend me to read. Is that, is that something that you feel like our cultural kind that our culture sort of influences or am I way in left field on that? No, I, I see that attitude quite a bit. The idea that somehow the King James translation is better than, or even closer to the word of God um, as God would have had intended it. And um, that, that, 
I understand where that comes from. I don't want to say anything negative about it, but I would point out that the scholars of the King James Version were scholars like myself. They were classicists and Hebraicists, and they they were working just like we are at our time. And and my problem with this whole kind of narrative of the King James being better is we simply can't understand it today. We do not speak like that. Mm-hmm. Within the next two or three generations, it will functionally be a foreign language. Mm-hmm. So I I worry that we don't um, communicate well with our Christian neighbors when we have this older translation of the Bible. Often missionaries will share with me in class here at BYU. They'll say things like, yeah, I read you know, this passage from James that, that, you know, changed the way Joseph Smith saw himself and told him to ask God. And they read it out of their King James Bible to an investigator. And the investigator will often say, is that from the Book of Mormon? Because it sounds so different to them. And, you know, these missionaries have to go through, well, we're using this translation. And then people will say, well, why, why does yours sound so weird? And, and that's, that's critical to me that, we be able to speak the language of Christianity in the way current Christians are speaking. But do we sort of wear that as a, a badge of difference, of peculiarity? It seems like maybe. Um, I'm seeing a lot of quotes of modern Bibles in conference. I see the NRSV and the NIV trend, uh, quoted there, and those are great modern translations. So I, I think it's giving away a bit. I think that's pretty powerful when you talk about, you know, two or three generations from where we're at, that it will essentially be almost a different language. Um, There have been so many times when I have been studying where I'm just like, what? I don't even understand. And then having the opportunity to chat with someone else who's studying in a different version and, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's like this. And I'm like, oh, so much easier to understand why don't I just go there? And I don't know why. I don't know if I'm if I'm, you know, so rooted in this King James version sort of uh, idea that to study anything else seems, you know, wrong. Even it, it, I don't know. Yeah. That that is a that is a an interesting thing that I have discovered as we've been chatting. Another thing too that helps, I think, for all of you listening on a very personal level, um, you get an impression with the King James that God speaks in this really kind of lofty language, this high register that's not really part of our ordinary world. The Bible is not like that at all. It's written in an almost sixth, seventh, eighth grade level for some of it. Mm-hmm. Some of it might be as high as high school. And then you have a few texts that are a little more elegant. It's it's a very ordinary diction. And so it, I think it misleads people to think that God doesn't speak like you and I do. And I, I'm here to say, he, if the Bible represents the word of God, he speaks like you and I do. There are grammar errors in it, lots of them. There are, you know, poor word formations, just like you and I have if when we mm-hmm. analyze our speech. And so I, I think people miss the fact that it, God might speak profound things in ordinary ways. And you you mentioned that uh, as Latter-day Saints, we're sort of unique in this, and we unite ourselves with maybe small groups of, I think you said Baptists, who still adhere to the King James Version. Mm -hmm. So knowing that and knowing that most of Christianity has sort of, you know, really leaned into these different translations, why why is it so subtle? I mean, we talked about the, the change in the handbook to say, hey, maybe these other versions are allowable. Why wouldn't we, if the idea is, you know, the salvation of man and women, 
the understanding of scriptures and God's divine role in our lives, why wouldn't we lean a little more heavy into that? I think we're still overcoming the 20th century's uh, books on the negativity about Bible translators and Bible culture. We developed a pretty deep history of conspiring individuals, of corrupt translation, of people that meant that intended to kind of alter the word of God. And I think we're finding that narrative was maybe overstated. Hmm. And the idea that a new translation, there's you know several books that would proclaim this in the mid to late 20th century, that the modern translations going on then, like the RSV, were, were corrupt and would, would undermine faith. And the reality is that that's really not why people get into translation. You know, that that's really doesn't hold up. And so I think we're realizing that. Um, that's my guess. I, I hope that that comes across as just my opinion. Sure, I don't sure. want to say why that's happening, but I, I suspect it somewhere in that line. And then enter into this conversation, this idea of... Um you know, these various translations, and you, Tom, have authored the New Testament, a translation for Latter-day Saints. So are you one of these conspiring gentlemen who is, you know, gearing to take us away from, I know the answer to this, of course, but what prompted you to to get in on, on, on this idea of translation? Um, for me, um, and, you know, having been at it for a little bit, um, the Bible's still an incredibly moving text. It asks really interesting questions about life, and it shows us the struggles of, of believers in very different contexts. It asks things like, what is a covenant? And it has all of these different models for covenant. You know, if you break a covenant, do you get punished? Do you die? Do you do you simply need to repent? And there's all these different like ways people say this will happen if you break the covenant. And atonement, we have all kinds of different views on this. And so to me, I feel like we were losing something of our, our sophistication in belief by saying we're going to abdicate our understanding to a 450-year-old translation, and we're going to give up that. And so I, I hate to use the language of rescue. That was not really part of what I'm doing, but mm -hmm. I, I I want people to engage it again um, would be a, a more direct um, way of saying what I really felt. So about a decade ago, I started on this process and um, took me about 10 years to do it. And I'm pretty happy with the results. Um, I think it's came out pretty well. So for people that are listening to this and, and you know, they don't have the copy of the book yet, you know, I say that because ever after this conversation, they'll certainly want to like give us an idea of how of how that sort of reads. Is it like how we would think, you know, the Joseph Smith translation would be where it's like, here's the original and here's what I think. And then, you know, sort of annotated or or how does it read? So it it reads like um, modern language, like you and I would speak here today, trying to I tried very hard to capture the way Mark's style is. And, and then Matthews, which is different. And so you should sense a little bit of difference where the King James flattens that. But, but you know, simple things like the King James uh, translation of Matthew 548 is, be ye therefore perfect. That's an imperative. Mm -hmm. But in Greek, the word is also just a straight regular indicative. And Jesus may have said, therefore, you are going to be perfect. And that's a very different thing to say to a believer, be perfect, 
rather than, well, you're going to be perfect. Like that's the where we're going to end up. And so then there's a note at the bottom to help the reader understand. It's not me choosing a word. It's that Greek means both. Mm. And so I, I'll do that all through the notes. I'll try to help you understand, hey, here's where, a, where somebody might have chosen differently. And here's the alternate translation for that. But it's a, it's a fully new English rendering of all the Greek words in the New Testament. I think it's powerful. I want to dig down a little bit more on that verse in Matthew, um, the the difference and the power that comes from being able to know that, you know, these words may be different in translation to you and, you know, making sure that you, that people recognize that you're not speaking for the church or anything like that, but like to you in, in knowing those two different sort of translations, like, why is that important to you? What is the significance of being able to look at that particular verse in scripture and go, oh, hey, Maybe it's not that I need to be perfect right now, but that I can be perfect. Like how, how has that impacted you and your worship and your learning of God and his plan and all those things? To me, it, to me, it's been healthy to ask the question, did God ever command me to be perfect? And I grew up thinking that I, I was a King James reader and you, later you engage this in Greek and it, it fundamentally could change the Christian mindset by hearing the words of christ it comes at the end of the sermon on the mount the words of jesus that he speaks to you through hearing those and doing those you are going to arrive at a place that you're perfect and you think of the burden that that could take off your shoulders or at least it's taken off my own the idea that it's a goal it's out there but it's not necessarily a commandment and i i think it i think it's destabilizing to think I'm always comparing myself with perfection and that's the commandment I have. And, and, and it's rather at the end of one sermon, Matthew thought Jesus meant from these teachings, I will help you get to a state of perfection. So there's a lot that can really change. And that's just one example uh, of that kind of thing that happens. When you take the opportunity, and I'm sure within, you know, your your work at BYU, within, you know, maybe church worship and service, or just in your everyday life, to be able to share sort of your perspective on this and being surrounded by people who have different attitudes, is it well-received or is it like, oh, that's Tom, here he goes again? Um, no, I, I think it's been very well-received. The thing I think that I've had the hardest time explaining or helping people understand my view on is the Joseph Smith translation. There's a kind of continued, why didn't you use that? Or why didn't you write that? And as I said earlier in this episode, um, I've tried to be more clear in the new edition. This is a second edition and I've offered a very kind of, I hope detailed explanation of how that works. Um, But as far as receiving kind of a new, um, translation, I've really felt people have accepted the fact that I can still believe in the Bible and translate at the same time, that those two aren't mutually exclusive. Do you you think, or do you see, you know, when people, how you sort of frame the Joseph Smith translation as just prophetic commentary, like that doesn't, that doesn't, um, I, you know, that doesn't scream heretic to me. I mean, the way that you, you describe it, I go, okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you look at the way we define translation, it's not really a translation, but I'll take commentary from a prophet of God. Sure. Are there people that, that take a lot of umbrage with that statement and go, oh, hang on, pal? Um, yeah, I have heard, I've had heard that in a little more pointed way, <laughs> not as kind of open to the idea that this is a commentary. And I, 
Commentary is one word. Uh, there might be other categories. Prophetic counsel might sure. be a good one too. Um, and where it will come become most acute is, for example, in Romans 8, um, where the Joseph Smith translation departs radically from what the Greek says. It functionally reverses the argument. And I don't know what to do about that. I'm going to be patient as a believer. I'm just going to kind of put that aside and say, I don't know what to do. But when you read my translation or any modern translation, Paul is grappling with the fact that he doesn't enjoy being good. That's fascinating. We just never talk about that in Sunday school. I mean, to me, just so interesting. And the Joseph Smith translation goes through and says, makes it the opposite of that. He's talking about other people, not himself. And, and so I, I don't know what to do with that. And so I can only, as a translator, encourage patience um, to recognize that modern translations represent what the Greek says. And the Joseph Smith translation represents perhaps the way the prophet engaged that or his own personal understanding or something like that. So yeah, it's a, that is difficult. It's an uneasy space. Most of the time, it's pretty pretty easy though. I sort of want to lean into that uneasiness a little bit. So I want to take a break. When we come back in the third block, I want to allow you the space, if you're willing, to really get into like what the Greek would say about that Romans 8 and, and the counterpoint of what the Joseph Smith translation says, and just be able to teach us about that singular individual point because I kind of think that's fascinating. So let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember, uh, we, we love it when you make a donation to the Cultural Hall. We do it using the platform Patreon, which means you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. Go to Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. Uh, where for as little as $5 a month, you get to see the awesome videos uh, that are produced with each of these episodes, meaning you get to see the cool amount of books that Tom has in his backdrop. Uh, you also get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where all the Patreon saints are hanging out. So think about it. Please do it. Encourage you to do so. Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. So let's get into it. Romans, let's go. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for giving me a chance to briefly to talk about this. So Paul's writing really near the end of his life, and he is writing to a community he doesn't know. And so there's a real interesting tonality of Romans. He's hesitant. He's not sure what he should say that will cause him to be welcomed when he visits. And interestingly, in the middle of this epistle, he has a, a moment where he talks about his own um, wicked desires. And we, we were talking earlier, right before the break, <clears throat> about this space of the Joseph Smith translation. And we have to remember that the Joseph Smith translation is correcting the King James Version. And so it doesn't just map on to a new translation. And um, at this moment, I, I want to just share a very short uh, passage from my modern translation for the reader. So Paul, Paul is saying, for those of you, when you hear these words, what he's saying is, 
I really struggle with the desire to do good. I don't really like doing good, but I do it, but I don't like it. So, so um, here's verse 15. This is Romans 7. I think I said Romans 8, but Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the thing that I hate to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Then it is no longer me doing it, but the sin resides residing in me. For I know that nothing good resides in me that is in my flesh. For I can want to do what is right, but I'm not able to do it. And that's powerful. That that last kind of defeatist notion. I, I know what's right. I want to, but I, I fail. And when I come to the Joseph Smith translation, there's a really um, significant rereading of these verses. And he alters it in a way um, that there, that it means Paul is saying exactly the opposite. Um, he starts the Joseph Smith translation, that passage starts off, for I know that I am spiritual. For that which is I am commanded to do, I do. And that which I am commanded not to allow, I allow not. And and again, um, going back kind of a thread throughout this episode, I exist in this space where I can only render the Greek. And my Greek, as you can check out against modern translations, it's accurately rendered. Um, it captures, I hope, some of the unelegance of that passage. And I wonder, I wonder if what Joseph's wrestling with, and this would be an interesting conversation, I'm not sure he fully understands Romans 7 here. And I think what he's doing is offering his own grappling with it, this prophetic engagement with the text. That'd be a healthy narrative for me, um, for many of us. But again, it pushes some people in in areas, and I'm really not interested in that part. What I love about um, in what you have presented, so not the Joseph Smith translation, but in what you have presented, it feels a little more human. Because how many times have I... <laughs> You know, yeah, I know what I should do. I know very clearly, but I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't feel like doing that or even, you know, that resistance of, I, I just don't, I don't want to do this thing, but recognizing, oh, this is not, you know, this is not what God would have me do. This is not the the better thing, air quotes, the better thing to, to me, knowing that Paul, who writes these great epistles, who's this, you know, someone that that I can learn from, study from, and all these things, and, and see how his righteousness has walked out in some of these things. Also, same, some days just got up and went, yeah, you know what, today I don't feel like it. I, I really love that part about him. He goes on for a little bit more. It, it's He's not done with it yet. He He's feeling some of the same things that you articulated, that here I am at the end of my life, um, this is someone who's seen the Lord. Um, he's he's had a prophetic ministry. And now he says, I really struggle with the desire to do good. And it could be complicated by a lot of things. He's had a very hard life. Um, some communities have rejected him. And he might be at the point where saying, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm going to keep going. And it's instructive to me to see that, and like Joseph Smith takes it in a different way perhaps showing his own interpretation of how he engaged the text. Like, what did he need to hear out of it? And that was something different than the text says, and that's okay. Um, that's the way commentary tends to work. So so then what is, uh, I, I can sort of imagine a few things, but since this is your space and what you work in, what then is the benefit from 
you know, from looking at the King James Version to looking at the version that you present to looking at the commentary from Joseph Smith. Like, on the one hand, I think that that could just leave someone to be utterly confused. There's all these different meanings. There's all this different interpretation mm. of this stuff and and leave it at that. But I think there's probably something more powerful in being able to study all these different translations and commentaries and versions and those things. One thing um, I hear a lot, and again, I'm always trying to be careful because I exist in a space that people have made decisions about and how the world works. But a lot of times we have a narrative that Jesus is like the following. And we'll talk about whether he's kind or he would do that or whatnot. And I'm afraid that's increasingly based on a no understanding of Jesus. I mean, no understanding as no understand. Yeah, because I think what's happened is we're no longer understanding well the Bible, and we're increasingly describing him by our own perceptions of how we think he would be. And so reading a modern translation, you 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 find out he gets angry. He uses that word, and King James translators tried to bury that word. It says one time in Mark, he's out of his mind. And and we we've lost a lot of the granularity about Jesus. And that space then we filled with perceptions. Well, he's kind, he's nice, he's gentle, etc. And so a modern translation can, I think you bring a reader back to Jesus. I think it could bring it back to a person to Paul. And I'm not saying that it's the right one. It's just the KJV as an experience. It's like going to a movie, a Peter Jackson movie, you know, a four to six hour epic. And that's one read of the way the Bible works. But a modern translation is a kind of, this is the way the current world is thinking about him. And we're using our skills as the best of our ability today to say, let's bring you back to Jesus. Let's bring you back to Paul and realize these folks will shape your lives in good ways. And, and that's what I think a modern translation can do. It is confusing though. And I, I agree. There's a lot, a lot of voices and I, I don't know yet how to navigate that well. But, you know, maybe asked in, in sort of a different way, you know, uh, as members of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have the opportunity this year to be studying the New Testament uh, as part of the Come Follow Me. A and we're often urged not only uh, within the writings within that text, but at General Conference and by, you know, apostles and prophets to know Christ, to, to learn of him, to hear his voice. How, how would you... And I know that these are just your words, your opinion, your expression. But how would you, as we have this opportunity this year to to learn of Christ through his teachings in the New Testament, how can we better do that? I think a couple things will help every beginning, you know, this person get engaging a new translation beginning uh, this year, is that the New Testament, the King James, has everything in a single verse. Like everything was spoken in these sentence-like things. And a modern translation will put it in paragraphs. They'll give it in its original structure. And one of the greatest things you can do as a beginning Bible reader is say, when Mar Matthew tells a story, it's almost certainly in Mark and Luke. And read those both. It would take you to read three paragraphs. And what you'll find as a reader is they're telling the story differently they don't agree in our, our kind of mashup world where like there's just one gospel that everybody tells. 
No, Mark disagrees with Mark, Luke and Luke disagrees with Matthew and all of this kind of disagreement, but it's a friendly disagreement. They bo all believe that Jesus is their savior. And so this is fascinating from a believer's perspective. Well, Luke thought Matthew got this wrong and you could see what he's fixing. You know, by the way, Luke does not agree that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect. Hmm. And so he said, be therefore merciful. A <laughs> very different yeah, yeah. statement. And, and so seeing these differences and say, well, we're all in the same team. We're all working towards belief in Jesus. But here are different ways believers engaged in this question. I think that's uh, really powerful looking in our, you know, our 2023 lens where people are so divided and we feel like the church is this and it has to be this one way and this one thing and this one directive. And I think that there are some elements within the church that that's the thing. But hearing that example that, you know, Mark and Luke and these different things, that it almost allows uh, there to be the space to be like, well, yes, and, and for me, and for this person, and 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 that can still be Christ, and it can still be the gospel, but maybe it doesn't have to be so rigid and stringent for every individual? I think that's fair. I am convinced as a scholar that James, the letter writer, found some of the way Paul formulated Christianity to be a problem. Um, and it's not that he he's no longer a believer in Jesus. He just doesn't like the way Paul has emphasized certain teachings. And so he offers a corrective. And that that helps me say, hey, I, here's where I'm at in my journey. And and you are might be at a very different place. And we can both agree on, if you will, the resurrection. But we might not emphasize works the same way. Or we might not emphasize mercy and perfection the same way. And you you might feel differently, but we still stand arm in arm together in in this. And that's where we've lost the New Testament. We've missed the complexity of it. You know, in a day and an age where it seems like some people are just like, well, you know, it's my relationship with God. It's my relationship with Christ that matters. I think that some have even just left behind the idea of scripture study at all, right? And just taken it to a uh, you know, it's how I practice, it's how I treat, you know, treat people. There is value in scripture study that we don't get in any other way. Can you speak to what that is a little bit? Yeah, one of the things, and this goes back to the very first part of our conversation, why some people exist in this humanities world. One of the greatest reasons to study the arts, to study great lit, is it's asked timeless questions. And we've, we can look back and see the way people have engaged it. Like, what do we do about this? And the Bible does that primarily about the question with God. And it it's not an answer. I, I think that sometimes when we think about scripture study, we're arriving at an answer point. And what we're arriving at is other people's conversations. Hmm. The Bible was not written for us. I know we say that with the Book of Mormon, and I'm not pushing back there. But the Bible was written by Christians for their peers to help them navigate their own daily lives. And now we need to be reach back through these dis, you know days and ages and say, can you help us understand how you were asking this question? How can my life be shaped? And that's what all great literature does. And I think so scripture studies should be part of all, all of our lives or in, in reading it, if you will, would be the way I would describe it. 
You know, something that you, uh, this is a, a, a complete aside, but I have had the experience and found it to be um, pretty impactful. When you talk about like breaking things up in, in book and verse, I've had the opportunity to read the Book of Mormon as it was originally without verses broken out. And it's a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. All the same words, mostly, but, yeah. you know, but but a completely different kind of an experience just just in that alone. Yeah. And in fact, decluttering the page a little bit with these numbers and things and making it a paragraph really changes the way you read because now we're like, well, I read it. I read 10 verses. You just read one paragraph and it's a unified thought and you see how the thoughts are kind of engaging in that. It it really is a different experience. So just to, as a question sort of around that, is that just because as we've tried to institute it in into our education and learning that it's easier to say book and chapter and verse and people are able to get on the page or why do we do it that way? Uh, it's really part of our inherited Bible history. It happened way before the King James translators uh, did their work, but we have some people living about four to 600 years before the translation of the King James happens, and they divide it in a chapter and verse. And the reason is exactly what you said. It's to compare. So you can say Matthew 21, 1 is the same as Luke X or Y, and you can, you can um, do that kind of modernist, if you will, enlightenment type work on the Bible that's meant a lot to past generations. And I think we're realizing we lost something when we went that way. So so put another way, there's value in doing it that way. And then also tremendous value in reading it in sort of long form as well. Because I would imagine if you don't take the a verse and compare it to a verse, that you don't get the the, the those nuggets of learning in that in that um you know in whatever comes about in that comparison there, you don't have that because you wouldn't be able to to take those sort of side by side and being able to read them in a long form would also be beneficial. So it doesn't have to be one or the other or one's better than the other. It's just, it's all good. It's just different ways of coming at it. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, they Both methods have value and just different types of reading. One feels more scientific one kind of leads you to believe you need a commentary alongside there and you explaining like every word and the other is more of a story that you're being part of. I love the conversation that we've had. It's it's brought up some in my mind some things that I had never considered before and just sort of reaffirmed some other things that that I that I recognize that I need, I need to maybe do a better job. And I pr- appreciate your sincerity and also your cautiousness to, to make sure that you share that these things are your opinion and that you, you know, as you teach at BYU, I know that there are certain, you know, sometimes things that people have to be careful about and all that. And all of those things aside, the time that we have had uh, together, I've, I've um, cherished to be able to, to hear where you come from and to hear a, a gentleman who's so passionate about what he does um, and, and to be willing to share some of that with, with us and, and your time especially. Uh, I, I guess as I leave, I want to give you the um, platform you know, we've mentioned a couple of times that you do have this book that people can um, be able to purchase. I'd leave you a, a minute or so to 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 uh, inform or instruct or to share or to plea or to beg or whatever you would like to call it to 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 those people that might potentially be fence sitters about whether or not they would get it, why they should pick up this book. 
Yeah, absolutely. And for all of those who can are the, who are considering this, um, there are a lot of great modern translations. And so when you think about why would I ever consider this one in particular, or say not or the NRSV, the notes of this one um, are intentionally written for a Latter-day Saint audience. They try to grapple with how certain verses have informed our doctrine. They've tried to, I've tried to give you places where the Book of Mormon echoes New Testament scripture. I've tried to give you this wealth of information that's intentional for a Latter-day Saint audience. And then I've given you brief histories for the book. This is what modern scholars are saying about the book and tried to say, this is, you know, a starting point for, for everybody's journey. And every Bible and its and a translation is written for an audience. And this one is not primarily an academic audience, but a a kind of, I'm a believer. Why would I want this? And so hopefully I think you'll find it beneficial to your to your journey. That that's what I had in mind, anyways. That's what I had hoped. And and I've heard a lot of good response. That seems to be how people are engaging it. And I know that there's certainly that audience of people that are like, New Testament again, what am I possibly going to learn? We did this four years ago. I would I would challenge that, you know, being able to have a book like this to be able to sort of twist, not twist the words, but to be able to twist the way that we're studying, the way that you're engaging um, to I, maybe twist is not the right word for it, a change in different perspective, but being able to come at it in a different way. I think that there is a wealth of knowledge that can be gained by doing that. And so I appreciate you, you know, following, following that calling and the promptings and being able to, to bring this book about, uh, Tom, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. Uh, and I will ask those of you right now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling right now, sir? And if so, what is it? I do not right now. I I'm in between callings. If you could pick one for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Mm, I've always really enjoyed teaching adults. I've, I found that's my best space. And so I have taught gospel doctrine a number of times, but yeah, I'm I'm happy with whatever. That would be an amazing class to be in, to have you in, instruct. I would just sit there mouth agape and be writing and feverishly recording and trying to, to grasp it all. Uh, the last question that we ask everyone, uh, ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Yeah, I as I get older, um, I I felt so much of my life my faith was defined, and it, I understood where all the boundaries were, and I I've destabilized that over the course of my life as a believer um, for different reasons. And one of the things that I think from my world right now is having a vulnerable faith that I allow to be influenced intentionally by texts like the Bible has meant a lot to me. It's my favorite thing to to reshape myself and to trust that these texts will offer an interesting perspective on that and a helpful perspective. I think so many of us have, I, I did it at least. I came to scripture knowing the answers. So reading wasn't really that helpful at times. I couldn't hear it. And I've allowed myself to be vulnerable. I'm on a journey and I recognize that I want scripture and great lit to be part of that and to shape me. And so that's been my favorite thing uh, of the last few years. Beautifully said. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. 
In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 